My name is Valerie Payne, and this is the podcast Finding Unity. I started this podcast because of a personal experience that helped me to see the need for unity in our society right now. I hope that you will come along with me on my quest to find unity as we seek understanding, connection, healing, and love. Hi, this is Valerie Payne, and you're listening to another episode of Finding Unity. And I'm super excited because we're talking about codependency today, and I have Nick Galetti and Jennifer Roach on. So do you guys just want to say hi really quick? Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, first, do you want to just talk a little bit about yourselves and your background? So Yeah, so um, I'm Jennifer. I'm a mental health therapist. I live in Seattle, Washington. Um my husband and I have been married 26 years. We have a son going to school down in Provo. He's 20. Um, I'm a convert to the church. I joined the church about two and a half years ago. Um, before that, I was an ordained minister in another denomination. Um, so I have a master in divinity and then a master's in counseling psychology for my therapy business. Yeah. So awesome. I feel like we have a whole podcast just on your, your story. <laughs> And it's a good story. Yes. Uh, So my name's Nick Galetti, and I now live in the Salt Lake City area. I grew up in Southern California, but I've lived here almost half my life now. So I'm not sure I can get away with saying that too much longer. Um, I am a audio engineer and language producer, and have done that for over 20 years. And I guess my lived experience uh, with our topic today is why I'm here is uh, it's what I feel like has dominated a good portion of my life. And while I don't like to define myself by these sorts of things, I, I can say that I am a codependent and therefore um, it is part of who, what has formed me yeah. and who I am. And I feel like you talk a lot about that in the book as well, about your experience with it. Um, and just so everyone listening knows, um, they've written a book together called Codependent Discipleship, and it's all about codependency. It has a lot of really good information and helpful tips. Um, so I guess first, Nick, do you want to kind of start and talk just a little bit about your experience with codependency? I will give the short version. The um, full one is in the book, right? <laughs> so oh, shoot, that's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> this is uh, this is over 15 years of my life, yeah. so it's we're going to give you the very short version. Um, I grew up in a situation where I was, uh, it was a, what we might call a part member family or where we have, my father was not a member of our faith and my mother was. And so as I grew up, I felt some responsibility to be kind of a religious leader in my, my home. And, uh, it wasn't my home. My father was a good man. He was there, but I just felt like, uh, that kind of pressure was placed on me a little bit. And as a result, I kind of grew up thinking that who I was and what I was about was trying to help people be righteous, be religious, be good person. And uh, as I grew up and got married, um, my wife ended up having some issues with clinical depression for about 13 to 15 years. It's kind of a hazy way to kind of describe depression times. But uh, during that time, I found myself feeling like I had to do everything. I had to fix everything that was wrong in our house and our family. And and as a result, I kind of, again, I just developed this identity that that's who I was. That's what I was about, was I was about fixing broken things and broken people. And it became something that w- I could not separate from who I was and what I chose to do and became kind of this compulsive um, or impulsive, whatever way you want to describe it, kind of behavior set. And so as my wife started to recover from her depression, I had to learn who I was uh, and what my value was in our relationship without having to fix someone. And that left me with some emptiness and some need for therapy on my own. Yeah. And as a result, um, I kind of came to this topic and to, to understand why I was behaving the way I was and yet feeling kind of unfulfilled at the same time. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that. Jennifer, do you want to share a little bit about what caused you to be involved in this topic of codependency? Yeah. yeah, Well, 
in my work as a mental health therapist, I have lots of clients who are members of the church, really, really good, amazing people who also find themselves in situations where they're trying to, you know, bring along a family member or a, you know, a brother or a sister who has kind of walked away from their faith. And it's like their feeling of responsibility for this other person and having to grapple with what does codependency look like in this religious context? And how is it different maybe than some other kinds of codependency? So that's how I came at this. Um, Nick and I had, Nick and I did a podcast probably two years, two and a half years ago now, and um, just became friends after that. And we're talking about this topic a lot. He had a really a good deal of this book already written when we uh, when the world shut down and went into quarantine. <laughs> and so we both found ourselves with some time on our hands and thought, like, we need to turn this into something. And wrote it up as a, as a manuscript and turned it into a book. And it's been really, really helpful to, for me to think about how religious people especially make a little codependent turn in ways that they don't mean to. They're not trying to be bad or wrong or controlling in any way. They're trying to live out their faith, and yet they can inadvertently end up in this really weird corner that isn't helpful for them or for or for the people they're trying to serve. Yeah. And that leads to, I just have so many questions. And I think one is what was interesting to me is whenever you hear this word codependent, I often think of someone who is dependent or has an anxious, maybe attachment style, Mm -hmm. someone who's maybe needy in that sense, not necessarily the fixer. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about that, um, I guess, just maybe like the definition of codependency or how those two personality types maybe work together in codependency? Yeah, we definitely focus on the fixer side, not on the 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 needy dependent side in part because one of our primary audiences for this book was people who find themselves in church leadership positions people whose calling their role is to somehow help these people who are in their care that are needy in some way um and as you see in the book lots of discussion about like what is the healthy way to do that how are leaders kind of elbowed into positions where they're helping actually hurts? Mm-hmm. Um, so we so we definitely take the the helper side. A, a different book, also an interesting book, would be the the needy person side and how they pull the help out of people and how they kind of demand caretaking. Mm-hmm. Not really the the side that we took in this book. Yeah, and we kind of address that a little bit because there's dependent personality disorder, which looks and kind of feels at least similarly on the outside, but that tends to be the people that need to be saved, not the people doing the saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's yeah. where, that's where we were coming from. Yeah. It's interesting how they, they kind of work together um, mm-hmm. as well. They, they feed each other. They cycle off each other. Like that's a whole other book. <laughs> yeah. No. So get ready, you guys to write that one. Just kidding. <laughs> no pressure. Um, okay. So can you talk, so something that just because I'm a non-married individual stood out to me in the book that I was curious if you could elaborate on is, can you talk a little bit about codependency with decision-making and choosing a spouse and how that might be an issue in dating or in a relationship? And Nick, you talked about this a little bit just in your marriage, but, um, yeah, I'm just curious about the actual dating and selection process and how that might play a factor. Well, for me, I, I can say that I, I don't feel that I was codependent in dating. It came, there was like this two parts of my life that it was in my teenage years and after I was married. Um, my wife may disagree, but the way I see it is that um, typically people can get into patterns of dating where they may use the phrase, I can't seem to find any good guys or girls and some might even think, why am I attracted to the bad boys or girls with baggage? But it's often we look to those relationships to fill holes in our lives. I mean, that's a bit gen- generic in general, but sometimes we look at dating that way. And for the codependent, the hole or the challenge that they might have to living a kind of a fully independent life is uh, because they see their value as being tied to fixing people. And if you don't feel valued, unless you're fixing people, you're going to find people who need fixing. And 
ultimately that's kind of a destructive starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, you're setting up a criteria that is dangerous and can lead you to a, a set of patterns in my mind where you're always going to need to see your partner as broken. And ultimately people grow out of that. I don't think people like to think that way about themselves the rest of their lives. It's it's not very empowering. It's not, it doesn't fulfill our potential. So if your relationship starts with that basis, then you may be having some issues. Um, I know that sounds a little uh, broad brushed, but that might just be the way that I'm seeing it from my perspective. I don't know what Jennifer has to say about it. You know, it makes me think of um, it, it, not any one client in particular, but lots of clients, especially who are young men who want, they, they have a good desire to be seen as somebody who has it together, somebody who's using their leadership skills, somebody who's aspiring to all of these things. But they can fall into this trap where the best way to make that known is either to pursue a girl who's like significantly less mature, significantly younger, or sort of like needy in some certain ways, insecure, um, super, super anxious, because then he can feel like he's using his leadership skills. Um, I, I see that a lot, that pattern play out in the, the single young adults that I know. I think that plays out less with older singles. Um, you get a little bit less, but in the young people, the kind of 18 to 21 year old crowd, that's what I see a lot of. Yeah. You know, just as you were talking, it kind of reminded me of another question I have. And maybe these are, you want to talk about this, how it relates to dating and maybe how not, but you talk about um, codependency and OCD and how they can kind of look like each other sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm almost curious yeah, I guess two separate questions. But first, with dating, do you feel like there's the other extreme where it's maybe too, too, um, I guess, I don't know, I guess the OCD aspect of it. And like, what is that difference with codependency and OCD where maybe it's like, oh, it's not perfect enough. That person's not perfect enough. Yeah. The, so there is a lot of overlap. And like Valerie, you you know this, the thing that would differentiate an OCD diagnosis is they're doing some kind of repetitive behavior to soothe their own anxiety. That can happen in codependency, um, especially, like we talk about it in the book around issues of leadership in the church. Uh, for example, a bishop who he feels like he may not be doing everything that he could be doing or doing a good enough job, and all of a sudden an opportunity presents itself where someone needs their last minute rent paid and he can, you know, kind of rush in and do that and like finally feel like, oh, I'm really, I feel great about my calling because I saved this person from, from homelessness. Mm-hmm. Well, this, the same dynamic can, can happen in dating of if you don't feel great about yourself as a person and you choose a partner who, who seems to want or need or, or call out that rescuing aspect of you, all of a sudden you can feel great about yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly the same thing as like repetitive behaviors that soothe anxiety in the sense of like hand washing or something like that, but it is a repetitive relational dynamic intended to soothe the the helper's anxiety more than it actually is to help the one who is the identified partner who needs help. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say that there's a component to this where she says that it's relational. And OCD can be something that happens within the person itself, where codependency tends to be defined by the relationships that you have with others and things. And they're both a little bit about calming and anxiety. But I think that codependency tends to use the other person in ways where OCD doesn't. Um, so, when I say use another person, that that's, can sound a little crass. I don't mean it that way. But at the same time, again, people use relationships codependently to fix their problems as well. Um, they just don't, it doesn't look that way on the surface. The codependent always has some kind of pain, some kind of self-esteem hole that they're trying to fix and fill. And, and sometimes they use fixing other people and as as the the balm for that and so and in, and in the church it looks fantastic and we really praise it a lot of time making the condition worse for people yeah it looks like discipleship sometimes yeah, yeah that's so interesting 
So just kind of going off that, what we were talking about, you also mentioned in the book um, being codependent in our relationship with God. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what that looks like, um, especially maybe I have some people who are not members of our faith. So just kind of how that can look generally um, and what that means. I think any faith will try, well, most faiths will try and get people to have a relationship with God some type of connection either through prayer or ordinances or different ways in which we try to use God as a uh, an example. Some people use God as a blessings vending machine. And for us, I think that um, as Latter-day Saints, one of the things that we deal with is we, we talk about <clears throat> We talk about value, we talk about self-esteem, we talk about these issues as youth, and we do to a certain extent reinforce those things as we're older. And so we, we want to have value to God. We want to feel valuable in what we're doing as part of what we consider to be His work here on the earth. Um, and so there's this idea that when we look at God, though, and we look at how important his work is and the things that he asks us to do that we often see people who make bad choices or what we might in air quotes call bad choices. Um, we feel that on some level, it's our job to save them, to fix them from their bad choices. I mean, you kind of see this rampant on social media, especially with politics, that there's people jumping in all over the place, commenting to save people from their bad thinking mm -hmm. uh, about whatever it is. And I think when we look at moral issues, we do the mm -hmm. same thing. We, we try and see people who are living a certain way and we go, it is our job to fix them. And we do a lot of missionary work and things like that in our church where we, we look at it as saving people from their bad lives and, and ushering them into a new one instead of teaching them the gospel and inviting them to choose it. Um, we, we often sometimes feel some pressures with that. I personally feel like that this gets to the point sometimes that people feel as if they are the ones that are fixing the problems that God can't fix in their lives, that God has kind of handed the reins over to them and said, you fix these people now. It's your turn. And if you don't do it, they're going to go to hell. And, and that type of pressure in some faiths is more than others. But you can think that, that you need to save God's work. And if without you there to be this voice of, you know, saving people, that God couldn't do it. And it's kind of funny because we look at God as this all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful being and yet we treat him as if he is dependent on us to get his work done. No, God can feed the hungry. He can clothe the naked. There are stories in the scriptures of that happening. He doesn't need us to do that, but he leaves gaps in his work here on the earth so that we can step into it and learn and to have those experiences, not because God can't do it or that he is the... You know, the, the problem, evil philosophy, uh, philosophically speaking, is, you know, why doesn't God do something good when he has the choice to do something good in a certain situation? And so we often blame God and then feel like, oh, well, I have to step in and fix God, um, who didn't stop the Holocaust, who didn't stop this from happening, and so on. So there's just different levels, and it, it feels somewhat irrational, but there's just different ways and levels in which this can manifest itself. Mm -hmm. And when you put it in those terms, people instantly go, no, 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 I'm not codependent with God because it assumes that God is dependent. And that's, that's a misnomer in some ways. So I don't want to look at it that way. It's more that we treat God as if he's dependent on us. Yeah. Another question I, I asked a friend, I, I told a friend that you both were going to be on and I asked, you know, what would you want to know? And one, one thing she asked is, um, what do you feel contributes to someone being codependent? Is it, I know Nick mentioned, you know, a lack of self-esteem. Um, and I think in your book, you talk about negative thought patterns, um, attachment as well. I think you bring up in the book. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what you think contributes to codependency? Yeah, all, all of those things. Um, in addition to it, sometimes trauma causes it. Things that people go through of no, absolutely no fault of their own. 
families where they learn that that's the relational pattern you're supposed to have and they don't actually realize that there's a different way to live. Um, most of the time though, I think when people get into this pattern, they mean really well. They're not, nobody, is, nobody starts down this road trying to cause harm. They actually start down this road trying to be a good friend or be a good spouse or, or be a good member of the church or whatever. Um, and they lose themselves in it. It's way easier to solve somebody else's problems than it is to solve your own problems, right? And it can feel really, really great to help other people, right? Like the advice that we that we get from, thank you, sorry. Um, the advice that we get from our leaders about like, get outside yourself, serve other people. Like, like all of that is the right impulse. And we can turn that into something that's kind of a counterfeit version of it where it's not helping other people, it's almost controlling other people. It's almost requiring them to be sort of they're the sick one and you're the helper um, and never allowing the dynamic in the relationship to grow, even though you started out with like the best of intentions. I think people get there through their own anxieties, mm -hmm. not because they were trying to ever be bad. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think so something I, I don't know if if Nick, you want to elaborate more on this again, because I feel like sometimes it's easier, at least for me to detach myself when when it's I, I keep going to romantic relationships. I'm sorry, but when it's not a romantic relationship, because I'm like, you do you, you know, like you do you. But in a marriage, I feel like it's tricky because you're like, no, like we're in this together and why aren't you here? Sometimes we feel like that, right? Like, why, why are you lagging? And I, or why is, why are you behind or, or, or vice versa? I think sometimes we're hard on ourselves too. And we're like, oh, well, they're just, you know, perfect. And <laughs> I'm, I'm lagging behind. But yeah. So what would you, what would you maybe say, like, as far as finding that balance? Because I do think it's different. And you talk about a lot of different relationships as well, like work relationships and things like that. But yeah, how how do you feel like um, one can find this balance? So the, there's a lot that you just said there. And I'm going to try and I'm going to try. No, no, it's, it's good. It's good. And it's funny because, um, you know, you talk about how this works in a marriage relationship where you feel like one person isn't there. And that's what I had for a lot of years with my wife had depression. I had, I, we had children that I felt like I needed to raise. I needed to make all the money. I needed to clean the whole house. I needed to do my church callings and I needed to do everything. And then some, because she wasn't doing hers. And so, you know, that's how I looked at it at the time. And I recognized how ignorant I was of depression and how that impacts people. But in this particular case, what that, what I was going through was constantly this sense of why is, why is my partner not being my partner? Why is this person not showing up in our relationship? And it's, it started to feel like I was failing as a husband because she's sad and it's my job to provide for her and to make her happy and all these other different things that I thought I'd been programmed from all the Disney movies that I'd watched or whatever. And Disney. <laughs> I love Disney. But, I do too, actually. <laughs> but but the, the romance that's portrayed in a lot of movies is, is let's just say it, it doesn't help the codependency thing. But I think that, you know, you mentioned negative thought patterns and attachment styles and, and it's all that self-esteem is part of it. The way we, as I say, we, as a codependent view other people as broken helps us to sort of medicate the pains of our lack of self-esteem. We, we feel kind of like, Hey, other people are broken too. But I honestly think that we're not very good at managing our emotional pain. And so while Jenna's right, it is born out of love and we feel that we're doing what we can out of love for these people. Um, it's sort of uh, diluted love that's diluted with fear, fear of what our value is. If we don't have anyone in our lives, fear of, um, you know, what, what would look, what would the relationship look like if they got better? Would they even still need me anymore? Um, those types of things can take over our lives. And the irony is that we've invented all those problems most of the time they're not they're not necessarily there all the time but i i do this thing that i call um 
press releasing. I, I'm very good at issuing press releases of what I think the problem is and what's happening. And therefore, I know the solution. But I don't bother to gather all the information. I should run for office. I got this down. I don't I don't run I don't go with all the information that I could get because I'm more busy trying to solution the problem than to find out or be empathetic with with what the problem is. And so that anxiety that I feel from discord or from not feeling some type of harmony or unity leads me to want to fix it. And and so that in a relationship with your spouse or even someone you're dating there's the whole knight in shining armor idea. And, oh my gosh, look at her. She's having a difficult time. Well, I need to come in and fix it. Because if I fix it and make her happy, then she'll be happy because of me. And if she's happy because of me, then maybe we'll have a relationship. And again, that feels very transactional when you put it in those terms. But that's that's really what codependent relationships feel like. And romance kind of just adds another layer of complexity to it. Yeah. And, and uh, apply that to church callings. You want to feel like a good bishop. You want to feel like a good ministering sister. You want to feel like a good Sunday school teacher. Uh, it, it plays out in a hundred different ways. Yeah. And I think another, like I mentioned, you talk about work, the work environment. And I, I reflected a lot on myself. And I know there are days when COVID actually kind of helped because I would never take sick days. And um, I was like, no, they need me. I have to be there. They need me. They depend on me. And um, COVID kind of forced me anytime I had a sniffle, I had to stay home. I wasn't allowed to go to work. And so it kind of helped me out of that a little bit. So I thought that was interesting in your book anyway, that you talk about all these different aspects, like you mentioned church, um, but also um, work, relationships, and you talk about a lot of different disorders and, and how codependency might play into those, which I thought was really helpful. Um, a question that I had as well is because we've talked a lot about this, like codependency and discipleship. So what's the difference? What does that look like? Well, a codependent style of discipleship is going to focus much more on getting the other person to get with the program, to do what it is that you think they're supposed to do, to make the right decisions, to have some kind of output that can make you feel better, that, that they're going to be okay, compared to maybe a non-codependent version of discipleship, which is you're loving that person, you're walking with them along the path, but ultimately it's their agency and they make the decisions and you're there as a help and a resource, but you're you're not making the decisions for them. You're not trying to elbow them into the correct decision. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it, an authentic kind of discipleship is just has much more freedom in it. Whereas a codependent version of that is the conclusions are already, they're already foregone. You already know what that person is supposed to be doing um, instead of having kind of a, an open love for the person that says like, I'll walk with you wherever you are in this journey. Not because I need you to get to some predetermined outcome. Yeah. And I think there's the two great commandments, right? To love God and love your neighbor. And you can't do those things unless you choose them. There is no love without choice. Mm -hmm. And so when you are in a situation where you feel like you're not choosing to follow God or to love your neighbor, then that's not real discipleship. And part of codependency is just dealing with this compulsive type behavior where you're not really choosing it. Or even if you feel that you are, you're not choosing it for the right reasons. You're choosing it to calm your anxiety and you are also casting aside this idea that the other people can choose you are going to fix them for them because they're choosing so bad that you need to jump in and fix it and so there is this kind of inherent dishonor to this gift of agency that we've all been given to choose god and to choose to love our neighbors that is at odds with codependency it's really, it's really hard. Uh, you know, Nick and I both have adult children. Um, and when you're talking about your own kids growing up, making their own decisions, and some of them are stupid decisions. <laughs> and how you, how you love an adult kid through that without trying to make every single decision for them. Like, that's the heart of, of not being codependent. Yeah. 
And it sounds, it, it just sounds like a, a tricky balance too, because you have, you don't want to be codependent where you're fixing someone, but at the same time, you may have people come to you looking for validation or condoning things that, um, almost to help their, de- the, their dependency in a way. And so that's another tricky balance I think is, is walking that line of not fixing, but also staying true to yourself, but respecting and walking with them in whatever they decide. Yeah. And sometimes telling someone, no, you won't help them is actually the best answer you could give them. Even like we don't talk about that very much, especially yeah. in church culture, is that sometimes telling someone no is putting the responsibility back on them where it actually belongs instead of rescuing them out of something. Yeah that they, it's a little chrysalis they should be breaking out of. Yeah. It reminds me of when I was in grad school, I'll never forget, someone who worked with um, people who experienced homelessness came and he said, the worst thing you can do is to give them anything. And that really took me back because he said, it's not until they hit rock bottom that they're able to reach out and get support. And again, people listening can disagree, right? But that just, it really made me reflect on and what I do and how I serve and how I might better support people. So I actually started passing out cards to homeless shelters to people um, when I would drive by because I felt like that might help them have the support they need. Yeah. My early career was in chemical dependency and you would see it over and over and over again. Some young kid stuck in the cycle of addiction. He would, you know, go out and use for two weeks, come back home. Mom would wash his clothes and feed him a nice meal and give him a warm bed to sleep in. And he would recover for three days and then right back out to using again and having to sit down with a mom and say like, you are going to love this kid to death because you are very much enabling their addiction, um, allowing the consequences of their own choices to not be that big of a deal. If they always have a a sweet mom who's going to wash their clothes and and give them money and and fill their stomach up and they don't ever have to face the, the consequences of their own choices that's that's the very environment in which the idea of codependency came out in the first place was it was in the the chemical dependency realm and you can really see why yeah so one question i i had kind of going off of this you know where's the balance is um i do believe looking outside of ourselves is important and it's important to serve and i feel like the main gist that i've heard from from you both and something I was thinking about as I read the book was Elder Oaks actually has a talk on why do we serve and he talks about different reasons that we serve. Do we serve because of fear of God? Do we serve because of what it looks like for other people? Do we serve because we actually like just genuinely want to and love God and it's for God? And so that's something I thought a lot about with codependency. So I guess what's the balance between being um, not being codependent but also not being so self-centered um, that you're not looking outward at all? I mean, it's such a good question, right? And I don't know how to give an answer that says, here's the formula yeah. for how you how you solve that. I think um, through the book, we tried to, to include a lot of self-reflective questions yeah. so that people could start to think about their motives, right? Ultimately, if you take dinner to somebody who needs a dinner that night, they get fed, right? Whether your motives were good or bad. Um, and... For your own soul and for the souls of the people that that you're serving, stepping back and questioning your motives is kind of the mature way to evaluate, am I going down this path? Um, Like, is this really just being driven by my anxiety to be seen as a good person or my anxiety to pick somebody else because I can't fix me or whatever, um, that hopefully your serving becomes more of a a practice that feeds you spiritually instead of just helps you avoid anxiety. Mm-hmm. Cause sometimes we get like Nick talks about this. We get the peace of the spirit confused, which is our own lowering of our own anxiety. And the only way to figure that out is, is just questioning your own motives. Yeah. Here, I want to give an example of something that's going to totally complicate what you want to achieve with this question. So <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> There was a time in, I think, 2008, and I talk about this a little bit more in the the first part of the book, where the real estate market was crashing. I was a real estate agent. I was losing 
money. I was losing possessions to repossession. And in one case, there was a, I don't include this exact story in the book, but there was one night I was in the elders quorum presidency of my ward and we were to go out as is common to, you know, weekly or whatever, go visit some people that are in the ward, perhaps ones that we hadn't seen in a while and that sort of thing. So me and the first counselor were out and we had visited someone and I was about ready to go into the next house. And I got a call on my cell phone and it was my wife saying, they're towing away our car. What do you want me to do? And here I am trying to do the Lord's work, go out and visit people. And the thought came into my head, well, I can't do anything about it. I, I can't, you know, what am I going to go do? Fight with a tow truck? I'm not going to fight with a tow truck. But I thought to myself, I'm going to stay out and I'm going to keep going on visits because I want to show God that I'm worthy of the blessing of this stopping of losing everything that I've worked hard for of not being able to provide for my family. And so on one level, I thought I'm going to keep doing God's work. Okay. That's great. That's fantastic. But the moment I said, I'm doing this because I really need God to give me a blessing so that I'm still, I don't feel so bad anymore. It turned what I was doing into a transaction. Like I was putting something into this spiritual bank account idea and I'll cash, I'll cash that check and pay for it right, you know, right away. And this is where it gets further complicated. The person that we visited, I challenged them to take the missionary lessons. They took the missionary lessons he not only got baptized, but a year later, him and his fiance were married in the temple. And so you look at that and you think, well, that was a great thing that you did. Yes, it was a great thing for him and it was the right thing to do, but I should have had a better motivation for it. Understandable as it may be. My wife's unhappy. My kids are at home crying with my depressed wife. I just lost my car literally seconds before walking into this. And yet I chose to continue to do the work. That sounds like a great thing. And I don't want to take away from the results at all that came from the other person's life. But the moment that I tried to manipulate that situation as to something for me, then it became a codependent discipleship type moment. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I hope that doesn't complicate. I hope that actually illustrates what I'm saying as far as I don't think that being a codependent disciple is some great evil. I don't think you're a demon for having that. I think that people do many good things or that the outcomes are good when they do those works. But I'm saying I don't think that's where God wants us to be. I think he wants us to choose to do the work because it is the work of salvation. It is the work of the Lord. It is the work that will bring peace to the world instead of just, all right, I'm going to put in my hour so that I can get my car back. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good um, example of it. And I feel, I feel like it helps to illustrate what we mean when we talk about codependent discipleship, because it sounds like what you're saying is really the goal is, yeah, to have this higher love and higher reason for serving as opposed to like, mm, I'm going to do this and A plus B equals C. And so if I do this, I will get my blessing for this. And you talk about that in the book as well. Just that. Well, and again, it's yeah. as Jen was saying before, it, it was cal it was meant to calm my anxiety in the moment. Mm -hmm. is what it became. Yeah. I, I was feeling sad. I was feeling pathetic and very fragile. And I kept going because if I went home, I would have to face that even more so. Mm -hmm. And so again, not this great evil, but again, maybe we just understand that there's a difference between what's happening to us and what's happening for us and maintaining our constant vigilance to choose God in spite of all those other things that may 
present themselves as alternatives to doing so. Yeah. Um, I mean, you just mentioned that it was kind of this avoidance of what was actually happening instead of this desire to serve. And in the book, I think you mentioned a couple times, I know you mentioned at least once, um, the scripture where it says, men's hearts shall fail them. And that was really interesting to me. That's something I've been thinking about a lot this past year. And so do you want to kind of elaborate on that and maybe what that has to do with codependency? I can't speak for every codependent, but I can speak for myself that there came to be my rock bottom point when I had three children, a depressed wife. I was a real estate agent that wasn't selling or buying any real estate. I literally was in bankruptcy and I had no place to live. I was at rock bottom and I came to kind of understand that it was at this rock bottom moment that I, number one, I don't have any control (laughs) over anything and codependency has a lot to do with control. But I, I came to realize that what I was going through was not sustainable and that if you could if you could overwork a heart, like you can overwork a muscle in the gym, my heart was just shredded. It was a flag tattered in the tornado of my soul that was just ripping to pieces. And my heart started to fail me in the sense that I started to question if, does God really bless his children? I paid my tithing. Why don't I have this blessing? I do this. Why didn't I get this? And you start to your, your commitment to God, which is what I think that is talking about is men's hearts failing them is that your commitment to holy things, to good things starts to waver because you feel that you have to fight so hard for yourself just to keep your head above water and you end up drowning. And that's that scripture I think was meaning to speak about, a whole general sense, uh, an emotional malaise that that kind of rests upon the people. But in my mind, for me, it was almost literally, I could not stand the commitment any further. I was breaking and I was, I was dying emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. I loved, I love that scripture and I love those thoughts that you shared. Um, something else that I just thought of with that is, I've always thought of that scripture also just to do with fear and um, having this sense of fear, which I think has to do with a lack of control, which can relate to codependency and and OCD, a scrupulosity you talk about as well in the book. I think that's very insightful and good for us, kind of like what you said, just to take a step back and kind of think about what do we need and how can we grow and be the person that we need to be in a healthy way, I guess. Exactly. And, and again, this is a really hard thing to kind of diagnose on the outside, because if you talk to anybody that knew me at that time, they would think, oh my gosh, no, Nick's great. He's doing fantastic. He's keeping his callings. He's doing everything he can, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I literally got an award from Fair Mormon for doing like 90 something podcasts in a year. Talk about encouraging the wrong thing. I mean, it was, I'm grateful for it. And I, I'm proud of some of the good things that came of it. But at the same time, I was doing it because I was like, there's all these people having faith crises. I need to save them. And I, I can fix them if I do enough podcasting. One of them is going to hear it and I will save them. And so they kind of, in, in a way, and again, I, I don't mean that they shouldn't give awards to people by any means, but it just happened to come at a time where I was so desperately trying to calm the anxieties of my heart about my faith and about other people's faith of my loved ones and so on that I was throwing out the biggest net I possibly could. And that's, and I got a big old fat award for it. And that makes it really difficult because we often times as members of the church uh, seem to reward people who do work hard or at least appear to be working very hard on their faith, but we we don't take the time enough to connect with people to know if they're really choosing it or if there's just stuff in their life they're just trying to fix. Yeah, or what's going on underneath the iceberg. They could be living a whole double life and we don't even know it. 
Well, um, and I don't mean like some great immoral life either. It, yeah. it just means that people have trials and that can motivate them in, in ways that kind of feel like fear, like you said before. Mm-hmm. Um, one question I'd like to ask you both. I have two more questions. This is one of them that I think is probably going to be very helpful to people listening, especially people who feel like they may be in this boat. Um, and that is how have you found or discovered unity through healing, connection, seeking understanding, and love um, through this process of overcoming and working through codependency? I feel like <laughs> that question, it's wonderful because connection, seeking understanding, love, all of that, like that's the goal. When you're treating someone in a codependent way, you actually are just getting the counterfeit of those things. It's a kind of connection but not a very satisfying one. Um, unity is, is almost the opposite of codependency. Um, codependency offers a, I'm in charge of them. I will fix them. I will serve them so that they can finally get their lives together, which, which that's not unity at all. Unity is something like you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ and we're both walking this path together and we're both broken people and I can help you and you can help me. And neither one of us are doing that because we're compelled to do it. Like that's unity. That's how you actually find love and connection instead of coming in as this figure of like, I am here to save you. There, there's just, there's no unity in that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Nick, anything you wanted to add? Uh, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've thought about this idea a little bit and I, I don't think that unity can exist where codependency exists. As Jen said, it, it's a pollution of how we should treat people and how we view them. So until we can heal from codependency, we can't come to real connections or real love. And Jennifer actually introduced me to this awesome saying, and I'm butchering it, so you can correct me if, I, if you say it better. You can't give a free yes without there being a free no. And so what that means is to the extent we can choose one or the other freely without restraint, without limiting our agency, um, we can't fully love because there is no love without agency. As we said before, you can't force it. You can't force understanding. You need to be allowed to freely choose to be in a relationship with someone for there to be unity. So like my marriage with my wife, when we were, there was a point and I don't mention this a whole lot in the book either, but we were on the brink of divorce, not because we didn't love each other. We very much loved each other, but we couldn't connect with each other while she was depressed and I was being codependent. I didn't see her. I saw her illness. I saw what was broken about her and she couldn't connect because she was in this fog of depression and she saw herself as broken and unlovable. And so we were both trying to give of ourselves to this relationship, but we didn't really love each other as fully and completely because there was still the separation. It was a division. And again, it wasn't because of lack of love. It was because we weren't executing that love in a way where we were together. And so as we both healed from her depression and my codependency, we've, we've become more unified. We see each other as we were as we really are now, but also as what we can become. And it's a beautiful marriage now where we miss each other before we're even apart and we find joy and rejoicing in our time together. And I I choose to love my wife now. I don't perform the act of a person who loves another um, because of obligation. I choose her each and every day. And I'm so blessed to choose her. It's so freeing to be in a relationship of trust where we're not controlling the other, but we're giving of each other and we're not fixing each other. We're encouraging each other and supporting each other. And to me, those two differences, I mean, the deeper I get into codependent study, the more I see that it just, it is the opposite of unity as much as it sounds like it is, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're connected. It is the opposite and it cannot exist Unity cannot exist where there's codependency. Yeah, and I think you mentioned this in the book. If not, I thought it when I was reading, and that is um, the scripture that talks about, you know, we need to act instead of being acted upon, and I feel like that's very much what you touched on there is that codependency causes us to be acted upon as opposed to us acting and choosing, like you mentioned, choosing your wife every day. Exactly. 
Um, the final question that I like to ask, which I ask everybody on the show, and you've touched on it both. You've both touched on it. So if you want to add anything um, to it, it's, it's just what does unity mean to you? When, I love that question. It makes me think of um, unity means we're all going the same direction. I think of like a giant crowd that's walking towards some some gate, some goal. You're not you're not uh, collapsing into each other's bodies and just becoming one body, even though you're all going the same way. Like everyone still has to pick up their own feet. Everyone still has to make their, their own steps towards whatever that goal is. And you can encourage and you can be there with them and you have to do your part while they do their, their part, but you are in unity, in purpose, in goal. I love that. So to me, Unity is freedom. It's the freedom to know as we're known, to be loved as we love, and to be in a place where we can love with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. It's that vulnerability mixed with trust. And unity is the power and freedom to become our greatest selves. I love that. Thank you so much again for being on both of you and for people listening again, a lot of those tips of healing and, and how to kind of work through this are in their um, Nicoletti and Jennifer Roach, their book codependent discipleship. So where can people find it if they're looking for it? Amazon. Where yeah. else Nick? Um, hopefully not in the used bin anywhere. <laughs> not, at, not at Deseret somewhere. <laughs> No, I, the, the Amazon is the best way. We have okay. the ebook version and a paperback version. And Jen and I are working up an audiobook version at some point in the future. Awesome. And so with some, some special features um, that I think will help make that an attractive uh, option for people. But yeah, please find it on Amazon and please leave us a review. We are needing reviews. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Well, thank you again both for being on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please like it on whatever platform you're listening to. Remember that it's okay to disagree. Unity comes when we can agree to disagree while still maintaining a love for one another. For more on unity, follow us on Instagram at finding.unity or on Twitter at finding underscore unity.